In this lecture, we're going to shift gears just a little bit. You may have been thinking a lot up to this point that much of what we've talked about has been indicating that heavy training loads um, could actually be detrimental to someone's health in the sense that it would predispose them to the possibility of infectious disease, particularly upper respiratory tract infection. And that shouldn't necessarily make you think that, oh, you should never exercise for a long time at high intensities. Rather, I want to shift gears here and sort of end on a more positive note in the sense that regardless of the intensity and duration, there are still anti-inflammatory benefits of exercise that affect both infectious and chronic disease. So we'll look today at some of those individual anti-inflammatory effects of those same cytokines we've been discussing that might produce an immunodepression when at high rates. So let's kind of shift gears here a little bit. We've really been talking about infectious disease and how you might have an increased upper respiratory tract infection risk with heavy training, mainly because you get a shift in the ability of your body to um, recognize viruses because you don't make enough interferon gamma with your Th1 cells. You get a shift to a Th2 response and possibly changes in mucosal immunity that would predispose you uh, to infection because you aren't able to deal with that antigen you're being exposed to. But what you also have to remember then is that some of those same processes that lead to that immunodepression may also actually have a positive effect as far as reducing inflammation in other tissues. So here we're going to see if, rather than with infectious disease, if we have an involvement of the immune system with exercise that affects chronic disease. And it turns out that's really one of the main reasons that exercise is such an important aspect of prevention and treatment for many chronic diseases. Because if you recall, inflammation is a integral part of how your innate immune system responds to threats in your body. That inflammation is the first step in repairing tissue. It is one of the first steps in indicating that there's something going on that the immune system should respond to. Now it also, in high doses, can be very damaging to your body, which is why inflammation often gets this bad rap of something we need to fight and take medications to reduce, but it's actually a normal part of your inflammatory, uh, your immune system's um, surveillance and healing process. So what if not looking at those heavy training loads, but looking more at a um, moderate level, what you're seeing in the cytokine changes that might be anti-inflammatory rather than producing immunodepression. So let's look at some of those same cytokines that in really high levels may have induced a risk of upper respiratory tract infection and see what beneficial effects they may have on your other tissues. So let's look again at these, um, these cytokines that are released during exercise. And hopefully now that you've had some exposure to them, you could remember whether they are considered pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. So one of the things we've talked about quite a lot is interleukin-6. And that one, unfortunately, has sort of 
multiple roles. It could be pro-inflammatory, it could also be anti-inflammatory. But the thing about this is that it really depends on the intensity and duration of the exercise. And we'll also learn here in a few minutes that it can be produced by multiple different tissues or cells and then might have a different effect depending on its origin. So your biggest pro-inflammatory cytokines are interleukin-1 beta and tumor necrosis factor alpha. And while you do get an increase of those with exercise, particularly strenuous exercise, it is so much lower than your other anti-inflammatory substances. So we know that one of your biggest anti-inflammatory cytokines, usually released by your immunosuppressive T regulatory cells, is interleukin-10. And we know that one of the things that causes the production of interleukin-10 is interleukin-6. And so having a large response from interleukin-6 is probably what increases IL-10. And that's not even actually shown on this image from one of the uh, research articles that I, um, that I took this image from. They didn't include that on this graph. But that that is one of the things that is often researched in terms of the anti-inflammatory benefits of exercise. Now something else that has an anti-inflammatory benefit is IL-1 receptor antagonist. You see that here. And understanding that this is a receptor antagonist is important because even though it says IL-1, which normally is pro-inflammatory, this actually is something that blocks the receptor for IL-1, meaning that it is therefore anti-inflammatory rather than pro-inflammatory like IL-1 is. And we also have soluble TNF, um, tumor necrosis factor alpha receptors. Those also have an anti-inflammatory um, benefit because they are going to be binding the TNF alpha in solution. Um, that's why they're soluble um, receptors. Now there are some other ones that have an effect on your movement of immune cells and they're called chemokines because they usually have some sort of chemotactic effect. So IL-8 and macrophage inflammatory protein, often abbreviated MIP, and monocyte chemotactic protein, often abbreviated MCP. Those are some other ones that are often released during exercise that specifically work to attract cells. Now this should kind of make sense to you because we did talk previously about how if the intensity and duration and mode of exercise, such as marathon running, is sufficient enough to damage muscle tissue, you're going to attract macrophages and monocytes to that tissue in order to begin repairing the muscle damage that occurs as a result of that exercise. There are some others that are also released in exercise called colony stimulating factors. And their whole role is to actually increase the proliferation um, of various immune cells. So I'm not going to go into any more detail on those. We're going to concentrate on some of these other ones that we've talked about as being released in exercise, but in those cases we talked about their effects perhaps on immunodepression. I wonder if hopefully this may sound familiar to you as the actual reasons that exercise is so good for fighting chronic disease. You'll begin to recognize why that has always been a recommendation for treating things like diabetes and heart disease. But we'll learn more about specifically why 
in these cases. So let's look at that one that is raised most significantly with exercise, and that's IL-6. We've talked about it in multiple lectures here before. What you may not um, have really realized was that it's made by other cells. We talked about its release in the muscle. That muscle is basically an endocrine organ, and that by the process of exercise, particularly when it's more strenuous and of long duration, and with a glycogen depletion, that you'll get a really big increase in IL-6. But that is not the primary source of IL-6, typically in the tissues. Usually, the main source of IL-6 is activated monocytes and macrophages, fibroblasts, and endothelial cells. And this actually makes sense if you think about it, because, because we know that IL-6 can be both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory, it should make sense that some of the cells that are responsible for inflammation or respond for healing, like fibroblasts and endothelial cells, that those would have a need to produce IL-6 because those are cells that are in tissues responding to the need for healing or inflammation with an injury. Now we also have some of your specific immune cells that are capable of releasing IL-6 like T and B cells, neutrophils, and eosinophils, but they produce IL-6 to a lesser extent than these other activated cells. You do have the ability for, for bone cells, osteoblasts, and keratinocytes to make those. And then we talked about how only more recently the identification that muscle cells actually have the ability to release IL-6, and that many times in those cases, it is specifically in response to the glucose content available for energy. The reason that it's released in exercise from myocytes is to maintain an energy balance, that you need to produce more glucose from the liver and break down fat for energy. And so that usually means that IL-6 is going to increase specifically from the muscles because of an insufficient glycogen content in those muscles. So not enough energy for the muscle cells to do their normal metabolism. So a good part of your chapter this week talks about how research actually came to understand the relationship between IL-6 release and the actual cells responsible for it during exercise, which were finally found to be the muscle cells themselves. So initially what they realized is that the cells we expected to be releasing IL-6, your monocytes and macrophages, didn't have an increase in IL-6 with exercise. But when they looked at the muscle cells and looked at the ability for muscle cells to make IL-6, which is based on a protein called messenger RNA. Messenger RNA is the substance inside of the cell that actually sends a signal to the cell to begin making that protein. So if mRNA is increased inside of myocytes, it means that you're going to have an increase in production of whatever the mRNA is made for. In this case, it was IL-6. That's how they determined it was myocytes that were producing the IL-6 with exercise and not your normal um, source of IL-6, which would have been monocytes and macrophages. So in this case, they realized, okay, we've got IL-6 being produced here and it's made specifically by the muscle cells, but is it all just because those muscle cells are damaged? 
Well, it turns out no. Initially, it was thought that it was monocytes and macrophages in the muscle cells producing IL-6 because the muscle cells were damaged. And we know that that's normally what happens. When you have monocytes and macrophages releasing IL-6, it's because they're responding to injury or inflammation. But if you took two different groups, if you took cyclists versus runners, you noticed a very similar rise in IL-6. And the reason that it's interesting to compare these two different groups of or types of modes of exercise is that cyclists have very little muscle damage from an equivalent amount of exercise compared to runners. And this is partly because this has um, a much more um, muscle damage just from impact, the impact of running itself, whereas you don't have any impact at all related with cycling but we noticed a similar rise in interleukin-6, which means that it wasn't due to muscle damage because you don't have nearly the amount of muscle damage from cycling that you do from running. So IL-6 must be released for some other reason, and that was because of the glycogen depletion, right? The, that realization that without sufficient energy stores that they needed to somehow produce enough energy from other sources, and that's where IL-6 came into play. However, they realized there is still some relationship of IL-6 to muscle damage because those runners, they may have both had an increase in IL-6, but the runners had what's called a bimodal response. Their graph had an initial increase in IL-6, just like the cyclist, but then later another one that was a little bit more sustained. So it's possible that that second peak of IL-6 probably was due to a lower sustained elevation in IL-6, specifically due to muscle damage. Those were the ones where macrophages had entered the skeletal muscle to try to repair the damage that occurred from running for an extended period of time. So IL-6 has multiple roles, they realized. You do have it released from activated macrophages related to inflammation and tissue injury, but that it has that relationship to the energy crisis. So that energy crisis is going to happen regardless of muscle damage with prolonged exercise. And so there were some really neat studies that they did to help determine this. There, your textbook describes some of those studies where they actually did one-legged exercises. So they did one-legged cycling and later in the day did a second bout of one-legged cycling, actually in that case, two-legged cycling, but the leg that had been depleted of glycogen from the earlier morning workout, it had a much higher increase in interleukin-6. So if you looked at um, a lowered glycogen leg and the other one that hadn't been worked out, you would see a much higher increase in IL-6 in the leg that had a lowered amount of glycogen. That's where they initially made that connection from IL-6 with glycogen depletion and its release after exercise so that we know that not only is IL-6 possibly released because of muscle damage, but during exercise itself, it mainly has to do with trying to stimulate glucose production and prevent the drastic drop in glucose levels. They also realized that you get a regulation of fat metabolism as a result of IL-6 being released. When glycogen um, storage is low, you get multiple effects. You're going to get 
an effect of IL-6 on the liver to increase glycogen synthesis and make more glucose, which your liver has the ability to do, and also to break down fats in adipose tissue so that those free fatty acids can be used for energy. And if glucose is then being released by the liver, you need to stimulate the glucose uptake and the use of those free fatty acids in the muscle. So IL-6 has these multiple different roles in addition to the release of it by activated macrophages and monocytes due to muscle damage. So we realize that we've got all these multiple effects of IL-6, not only on your metabolism related to glucose use, but also the inflammatory response for muscle damage. We also can look at how IL-6 specifically affects those T cells. Now this should be a little bit of a review. Remember we talked about the fact that one of the things that IL-6 does is it causes a change in the ratio of Th1 to Th2 T helper cells. You will block the response of Th1, which means you'll not have enough interferon gamma available to fight off viruses, but that you will get a relative increase in Th2. So that will become out of balance. You will get much more Th2 and a smaller amount of Th1. And that's actually what um, causes that immunodepression, or one of the things in addition to some possible changes in those mucosal proteins, like, like excuse me, secretory salivary IgA. But what does all this have to do with the potential changes to chronic diseases? Well, it turns out that one of your big chronic diseases, such as autoimmune diseases, has that direct link between exercise and the immune system. Because these changes in your T helper cell responses are also going to change how the immune system responds in autoimmune disease. It turns out that type 1 diabetes mellitus is an autoimmune disease. Autoimmune thyroid disease and also Crohn's disease usually occur because of an enhanced type 1 response. So exercise, by decreasing the type 1 response and enhancing the type 2 response, could actually reduce symptoms in autoimmune diseases that primarily involve type 1 responses. Now, not all immune responses, autoimmune responses include a type 1 response, but in those that do, like these listed here, you could have exercise be part of that treatment response because it would counteract the type 1 autoimmune response that is causing the autoimmune disease in the first place. But that's not the only thing that you could see in terms of anti-inflammatory effects of exercise. Well, if you look at the anti-inflammatory effects of exercise related to a sedentary lifestyle, we see that if you don't exercise enough, you're going to get an accumulation of visceral fat tissue. That's just going to happen because of an imbalance in the, um, the energy that you are taking in versus the energy that are, you are using in a sedentary lifestyle. Turns out that that adipose tissue that collects, particularly in the internal organs and abdomen, is a hormone factory in and of itself. It is going to produce all kinds of things that are going to increase the inflammation in the entire body. You will develop a state of chronic, systemic, low-grade inflammation as a result of this increase in visceral fat. One of the things that happens as a result of the things that are released by this excess fat is you will begin to get insulin resistance. This is the reason that people 
that have a higher amount of visceral fat and truncal obesity have a greater likelihood of type 2 diabetes mellitus because they develop insulin resistance because part of the hormones released as as result of the increase in fat accumulation is something called resistant. And resistant is going to, as its name implies, produce a greater insulin resistance. You're also going to get atherosclerosis as a part of this change in the hormones from excess fat. This is going to narrow the arteries. That's what atherosclerosis ends up doing. It's actually an inflammatory process occurring in the walls of your blood vessels. You also begin to get changes in the nerves. One of the ways that um, it's believed that dementia and Alzheimer's specifically occurs is through inflammatory process in the nerves, particularly in the brain and central nervous system. You also will get a decreased ability to fight the genetic changes that are occurring in your cells, which is what eventually leads to cancer development. So you're not able to then fight those changes in the genetics that are occurring usually through the process of surveillance of natural killer cells. They normally are going to be able to identify those and then take out the cancer cell from circulation. That may not happen as you get this chronic systemic low-grade inflammation. So let's look at how these processes that are occurring as a part of the inflammation in your adipose tissue are going to lead to disease. So what we now know is that inflammation has a major role in the majority of the chronic diseases that are prevalent today. We know that that accumulation of visceral fat usually involves the immune system because of inflammation generated by macrophages that infiltrate that visceral fat. When you get an infiltration of macrophages into the visceral fat, you will begin to get an insulin resistance. That's why type 2 diabetes is very common in those who have a significant amount of truncal obesity. You will also then get immune cells that begin to invade the blood vessel walls. That's what produces atherosclerosis because you get inflammation that begins to make this tissue swell and grow and become infiltrated by fats. In brain cells, you will also have inflammation that ends up destroying some of the connections between the various neurons. So you can begin to see the connections between some of your really major chronic diseases that are the number one killers in the United States today and actually some of the largest healthcare costs related to disease in our country. Now that doesn't mean that other types of chronic disease don't also have a connection. For example, even though most of the cases of COP, COPD are related to smoking, the inflammation that occurs as a result of that tissue damage is largely responsible um, or, or largely due to the infiltration of um, immune cells as that tissue has been damaged by smoking. And I already mentioned before that that um, decrease in natural killer cell surveillance is one of the things that is currently being studied as one of the reasons that cancer is able to, to take hold in people who have um, a lower level of physical activity. So we talked about the possible relationship between each of these. Now, it turns out that um, inflammation related to arthritis, both osteoarthritis and autoimmune-generated arthritis, has a role of immune cells as well. 
and pulmonary diseases because of inflammation responding to tissue damage from smoking, or even just the changes that occur um, after that disease has progressed, often predisposed to infectious disease because they're more susceptible to pneumonia. And that's where you also get a link to the immune system. So you can see here that inflammation plays a role. And remember that inflammation is one of your innate immune system responses. So many of these connections we can make directly to adipose tissue and a decrease in the physical activity of an individual. So it turns out that that sedentary behavior that leads to an increase in fat accumulation in the body directly connects to disease. And much of that has to do with inflammation that is produced within that visceral fat. And this may be the part that you hadn't really understood in the fat in the past. Many of us all know that in a certain amount of sedentary behavior and inactivity is going to usually make an individual gain weight. But what's actually happening on a microscopic level is what you may not have made the connection to in the past with regard to the immune system. Because this table actually comes um, from your textbook. It talks about this idea that the adipose tissue is a hormone factory. So what you have here in the adipose tissue that begins to collect as a result of a sedentary lifestyle, you get free fatty acids that have been known to upregulate those toll-like receptors on the surface of your immune system cells that are responsible for producing inflammation. So what we know is these free fatty acids increase the toll-like receptors, most of them on the surface of monocytes. And you may remember that in a past lecture, we talked about there are different types of monocytes. Some monocytes are more pro-inflammatory and other monocytes are anti-inflammatory and they're categorized that way based on the CD markers that are on their surfaces. There are CD14 positive cells, CD16 positive cells, and that the differences in the expression of those cell surface molecules determine whether they are anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory. So in this case, what happens is these monocytes and their various um, types of cell surface markers, you get a transition more to the pro-inflammatory monocytes, the M1 cells. Those M1 monocytes have a greater ability to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines, or usually adipokines, and we call them that because these monocytes or macrophages, they invade the visceral fat tissue. They set up camp kind of in between these different um, fat cells, and they begin to transition to a greater ability to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. So with sedentary behavior, you get an increase in the ratio of pro-inflammatory monocytes and a lower amount of the anti-inflammatory monocytes. This imbalance in physical activity gives you a positive energy balance. With a positive energy balance, you're gonna get accumulation of fats in general. You're gonna get an increase in your circulating triglycerides. You're going to get a change in the ratio of HDL to LDL cholesterol. Remember, you ideally want HDL to be high. That's your good cholesterol. But with sedentary behavior, that ratio goes down. You get less HDL and more LDL. 
This, in general, is the perfect recipe for atherosclerosis to begin to occur in your bloodstream or in your um, blood vessels. So you're going to get vascular disease, not only in the heart, but in the peripheral um, vessels as well. So this is what predisposes an individual to heart disease because of that sedentary behavior. Now, this accumulation of fat molecules here also is what's going to produce the increases in IL-6 made by those monocytes and macrophages that have been activated in the, in the fat cells. This is probably where we get the increase in CRP. Remember, that's that acute phase protein, C-reactive protein, that is a marker in the bloodstream for inflammation. And people who have heart disease almost always have an increase, sometimes even just a low-level chronic increase in CRP. We also know that they have an increase in some of your pro-inflammatory cytokines, like tumor necrosis factor alpha. That's one of the bad ones. We don't want that one to be high. So this general increase in adipokines or cytokines that are pro-inflammatory also contributes to neurogeneration, which can lead to dementia and depression. It seems to increase tumor growth particularly ones that are related to exercise like colon cancer and breast cancer. And I'll tell you why there's a relationship with that in just a minute. And we know that you have an increased resistance to insulin as you get a, a higher amount of visceral fat. And that's where the link comes into play with type two diabetes. So here you've got your major chronic diseases found here in the United States. These all together decrease quality of life, reduce your longevity and ultimately lead to death in the long run. It reduces your lifespan. So what we've learned about exercise previously is it does affect these immune, immune cells. In fact, it produces an anti-inflammatory effect. Regular physical activity could then be seen as a treatment and preventative for chronic disease through its anti-inflammatory effects. So we know that there is an effect on skeletal muscles, that you have a hypertrophy and a, a switch in the fiber types. We didn't talk about that in this class, but that has been known as a, one of the effects of chronic um, exercise training. And these are where you get the really big effects that are related to reducing chronic disease risk. You get an increase in vascular flow. You get a more appropriate reactivity of the vascular muscles. The smooth muscle in the vessels should be expanding or dilating with exercise. What happens with atherosclerosis is sometimes they constrict rather than dilate, and that would reduce blood flow. We want an increase in blood flow with exercise because it's a physiologic stressor that increases your demand for oxygen and glucose. So we need more blood supply, not less. So you get an increase in angiogenesis as well. Those are all going to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. The other systemic benefits of exercise to your metabolism is this idea that you improve your insulin response, you improve insulin sensitivity. You also are going to have an increase in lipolysis. You get an increase in adipose browning. That's reducing your adiposity in general, which means that you're going to have a decrease in the production of all of those fat-generated cytokines, like tumor necrosis factor alpha. So this is really important. By increasing lipolysis and increasing fat oxidation, we're going to also get changes to tumor necrosis factor alpha and other cardioprotective effects 
of anti-inflammatory cytokines. We know that IL-10 increases with exercise, IL-1-RA, remember the IL-1 receptor antagonist. We know that CRP is actually going to change, and actually, I'm not sure why that is an upward arrow. This should be, goes down. CRP goes down with um, chronic exercise training. You do get an increase in cortisol with exercise. That is going to have an anti-inflammatory effect too. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we get an increased risk of upper respiratory tract infection with highly strenuous training loads. So you've got this balance here. In, in the sense of a athlete who has a really high training load, that anti-inflammatory effect of exercise puts them at risk of upper respiratory tract infection. But in somebody who's at risk for chronic disease, a moderate training load is going to be good for producing an anti-inflammatory effect that would reduce blood pressure, their lipid profile, improve their insulin response, um, reduce their adiposity. Those are all going to be beneficial effects of exercise that will actually reduce chronic disease risk. So we talked all about here the anti-inflammatory effects, but how is it specifically affecting the immune system that's going to give you an anti-inflammatory? We talked already in these last few slides about how cytokines are changed in exercising muscle. IL-6 is released. That um, exercising muscle releasing IL-6 is going to produce a change in the production of other anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-1-RA and IL-10. We talked about that already. That's a really important effect of exercise. From the muscles themselves, you're going to get anti-inflammatory cytokines being released. And you will get a decrease in pro-inflammatory cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha. You're also going to get in the immune system because of exercise, a reduced expression of toll-like receptors. Remember, those are those cell surface proteins that actually function to recognize antigens in the system. So monocytes in the system function to recognize antigens that they're exposed to. So by reducing the cell surface expression of toll-like receptors, you're going to get a decreased ability to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines because you won't be able to recognize those, um, in, in this case, TLR4 in particular, which we'll talk about in a second, is what recognizes endotoxin. We talked before about endotoxin being produced with exercise and that with chronic exercise, you develop a tolerance for endotoxin being released from your gut. So here, this goes along with what we talked about previously. When you have a regular exercise regimen, you begin to be able to tolerate things being released from your gut with exercise like endotoxin, and you don't have that need for producing pro-inflammatory cytokines from TLR4 anymore because you've developed a tolerance to the substance that TLR4 detects on monocytes. You will also find that you won't have as many monocytes and macrophages infiltrating adipose tissue because in general, you'll have a decrease in adipose tissue. So reducing the infiltration of those cells into adipose tissue becomes really important. Not only that, but you get a shift in 
the type of monocytes or macrophages that are there. You get a decrease in the type 1, which are the pro-inflammatory macrophages and monocytes, and you'll get an increase in the anti-inflammatory macrophages and monocytes. That's a good thing because the anti-inflammatory macrophages are the ones that release IL-10. You don't want the, the type 1 uh, macrophages, they release tumor necrosis factor alpha. So this is good. With fewer of those, you will have less tumor necrosis factor alpha. You will also have less of the IL-6 that is produced by macrophages, and that's okay because remember IL-6 can sometimes be pro-inflammatory, and this is one of those cases where it is. So by reducing the type 1 macrophages, we reduce the pro-inflammatory type of IL-6. We also, with exercise, get an increase in the T regulatory T cell production of IL-10. This is really important because we know that IL-10 is a huge anti-inflammatory cytokine. So the more we can produce that in the system, the better we are about reducing the inflammatory effects of chronic disease. We also know that exercise to produce kind of like a fight or flight stress response. That is going to be largely through the release of catecholamines, um, like adrenaline, and the release of cortisol. So we know here in this case that cortisol is going to have a immunosuppressive effect or an anti-inflammatory effect much in the same way that it does when we give hydrocortisone as a treatment for an inflammatory condition or for an allergy. It's going to reduce the inflammation that's occurring in the body just through the release of this natural fight or flight response of cortisol. So here you've got five different ways that you have anti-inflammatory, sorry about that, anti-inflammatory benefits of exercise directly related to the immune system. So we've got multiple ways then that you can get an anti-inflammatory effect with chronic disease. It is number one related to the reduction of adipose tissue which in general is going to have a metabolic effect on reducing fat um, cell size, reducing adipocyte size, and also the other things that fat cells can produce, your different other hormones. So there's both a metabolic change with exercise and an immunomodulating effect of anti-inflammatory response that is similar to what happens with what we've talked about before, but typically here, your person who is looking to reduce their chronic disease risk, they're probably going to be starting with just regular moderate exercise, not the highly intense exercise that we talked about as putting someone at risk for upper respiratory tract infection. But unfortunately, what research has found is that short bouts of low and moderate exercise don't really produce a high circulating interleukin-6. So is there really an anti-inflammatory benefit of low to moderate exercise? Well, that had been debated in the literature quite a bit. And even recent studies that I found since the publication of our textbook in 2013 say that low and moderate exercise do not drastically increase IL-6 and IL-10. So they're actually suggesting that some of your um, 
it's sedentary individuals just starting out with exercise, the result of their reduction in chronic disease risk has less to do with the immune system's anti-inflammatory effects than it does with the other effects that are related to metabolism. We do know that inflammation must go down even as a result of low to moderate exercise because it seems that CRP decreases. But that reduction in C-reactive protein is probably not modulated by IL-6 or IL-10. It's probably more related to these things. Moderate, low and moderate exercise is still going to affect your energy balance. And by producing a negative energy balance, you are going to reduce visceral fat because you're going to end up using more of that as an energy source. And that's going to reduce the ability for those fat cells to um, produce the inflammatory effects from macrophages that have infiltrated. But that also is going to produce changes in the metabolism related to cortisol and adrenaline. You will have a decrease in pro-inflammatory cytokines that reduces systemic inflammation, but typically the acute IL-6 increase has more to do with higher intensities. We know that there is a big difference in intensity and duration with exercise and its immune effects. So here, for example, with, um, with various exercise bouts, you may have changes in IL-6 and CRP, but over training, just as a part of training adaptation, you will see a smaller increase in IL-6 as your training goes um, through time. So there's similar training adaptations even with people who are just starting a regular physical activity regimen. In the beginning for them, it's probably going to be more related to cortisol and catecholamines that are going to, and the, the negative energy balance that that is creating, then eventually you will get those um, greater changes in the ability of your mononuclear cells to produce the cytokines that will produce an anti-inflammatory effect. So what happens eventually as that person progresses, hopefully is they stick with their exercise regimen. As they progress and develop a greater um, endurance ability and cardiorespiratory ability, that they're going to have a need for training adaptation and increasing their training load in order to get a greater anti-inflammatory effect. That's the same thing that you would expect in an athlete who is trying to produce overload to increase their training um, adaptation as well. What you would have here then is as that individual continues to stick with exercise, they would eventually inhibit the chemokines that usually attract cells to the adipose tissue. Because they have fewer um, adipocytes and smaller sized adipocytes there, they are going to have a reduced amount of monocytes and other mononuclear cells that are there, which is going to decrease the ability of those adipocytes to produce other cytokines. So we know from what I talked about before in previous discussion that those toll-like receptors that are normally on the surface of your monocytes, those are going to be what allows those cells to produce anti-inflammatory, to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. So if you can reduce not only the circulating monocytes 
and the monocytes that attr are attracted to adipose tissue, you will ultimately get a decrease in the pro-inflammatory cytokines because you won't have as many cells in those um, areas of fat tissue to be able to produce the cytokines that normally lead to inflammation when you have a high amount of fat tissue. Now, I wanna go back to this idea of your toll-like receptors because they seem to be coming up here and I wanna make sure we all remember what their role is. Those um, toll-like receptors are membrane proteins and here they're most commonly found on the surface of your monocytes and macrophages. That's the cell that primarily, the cell that primarily expresses TLR4 is your monocytes. Now TLR4 is the surface membrane receptor that detects endotoxin. Remember lipopolysaccharides are found in the surface of gram-negative bacteria in your gut. And so those are not self-antigens. So these toll-like receptors serve a purpose to detect pathogen-associated molecular patterns or PAMPs or injury that produces danger-associated molecular patterns. So when that toll-like receptor on the surface of your monocyte detects that pathogen-associated molecular pathogen, it begins to release pro-inflammatory cytokines. So that's why this discussion of how exercise reduces TLRs could lead to a reduction in pro-inflammatory cytokines. That's one of the ways that exercise may actually be anti-inflammatory. We know that through research, people who are physically active on a regular basis, they have a lower amount of this TLR4 surface, or surface receptor. That means they have a decreased ability to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. That for them is a good thing. That's probably why they don't have as much inflammatory disease because of the regular activity. We also know that in addition to just in general reducing those toll-like receptors, you also in general have a reduced amount of the cells that have those TLR4 molecules on their surface anyway. Exercise reduces the number of monocytes that are pro-inflammatory, the ones that have a greater TLR4 expression. Remember, those are the ones we talked about as your M2 inflammatory monocytes, the ones that have CD16 on their surface. One of those letters is missing there. The cells that express a higher amount of CD16 have a greater ability to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-1 beta. So by reducing the ones that have that ability, then you have less inflammatory cytokines. By reducing the expression of TLR4 on the surface of those, you also have the reduced ability to even detect that there's something in the area, and then you won't have that production of those cytokines either. So there is a connection. We do have this connection with exercise and the immune system that can actually reduce chronic disease. And this also comes from your textbook. Um, this is kind of a summary of how physical activity can reduce your risk of chronic disease 
or have some sort of therapeutic value for treating it, even if you've already been diagnosed with it. So the biggest killer in the United States is coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease. And there is a ton of epidemiological evidence that high levels of physical activity and physical fitness have a lower risk of developing heart disease in the first place. In fact, randomized controlled trials have shown that regular physical activity modifies your risk factors. It changes your lipid values, it changes your um, blood pressure, and it also reduces obesity, which is one of the big things that is a risk of heart disease. We also know that some of the same risk factors that produce um, heart disease can also produce stroke because many times atherosclerosis, which is the primary disease process of heart disease, is also involved in the production of risk of a stroke. So some of those same things that reduce risk of cardiovascular disease also reduce risk of stroke. There haven't been as many big um, randomized controlled trials with normalizing blood pressure related to heart, or I'm sorry, stroke risk, but there is still evidence that high levels of physical fitness and physical activity reduces risk of stroke. Cancer, here, remember I said I would tell you about specifically colon cancer and breast cancer and its relationship to exercise? So it seems that people who have high levels of physical activity, they have lower risk of colon and breast cancer. One of those reasons is that in women, with high levels of physical activity, you have lower sex steroid hormone levels. That means that that reduces the risk of breast cancer. That's because um, there are many breast cancers that respond to estrogen. And so with lower sex steroid hormones, you're gonna reduce that risk of breast cancer. For colon cancer, we have to look at the relationship between um, bowel transit time and colon cancer. So exercise seems to stimulate the movement of the intestines. It, it actually reduces the amount of time it takes for you to eliminate your bowels. And so by reducing the amount of time that your food is in contact with your intestines, you're reducing the time that any potential toxins or um, cancer-causing substances are in contact with your bowels. And so that decreased bowel transit time seems to be related to a reduced risk of colon cancer. Type 2 diabetes, this is very closely related to physical activity. We know that um, there is a very high association between reducing your risk of type 2 diabetes if you have high levels of physical activity and physical fitness. And that's mainly because your lifestyle interventions related to diet and exercise lowers body mass, improves glucose tolerance, and reduces not only your, your risk of developing it, but it's even used as a treatment. It reduces your um, risk of heart disease if you've already been diagnosed with diabetes, and it also reduces your, your all-cause mortality, your risk of dying, even if you've already been diagnosed with diabetes. Dementia has also more recently had close ties to higher levels of physical activity. Um, we know that there is a much lower risk of dementia and cognitive decline in general if you have higher levels of, levels of physical activity. So while there is limited evidence from um, randomized controlled trials, there is an accumulating amount of evidence more recently that exercise can lower your risk or at least delay 
the cognitive impairment that is um, a hallmark of dementia. There are also other diseases that have a close tie to exercise. I mentioned chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and this is interesting because even though the main cause of that is actually another lifestyle issue, which is smoking, exercise has been shown to increase the quality of life and ability for those individuals to maintain their overall function and reduce frailty. You have changes to other vascular issues like intermittent claudication with exercise, depression, because um, exercise tends to increase serotonin and that can be a positive response for depression. And some of your musculoskeletal conditions like osteoarthritis and osteoporosis have a positive benefit of exercise. So we've got all kinds of evidence. There's actually a really good flow chart on page 308 of your textbook. And I would recommend actually reading through the description or caption that's associated with this chart because it actually goes through and explains. Because if you just glance at this, this looks like a confusing, um, a confusing chart. All this is doing, if you go back to one of the previous slides where I talked about how adipose tissue um, can, and inflammation can actually lead to a whole bunch of different diseases, this actually kind of flips that on its head and says if you do um, either acute high intensity or regular moderate intensity activity, what are the benefits of that kind of exercise to the various tissues in your body and ultimately to your disease risk? Well, if we look at the um, what exercise does to your nervous system, we know that it stimulates both the um, sympathetic nervous system by increasing adrenaline and the hypopituitary or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis by increasing cortisol, kind of like a fight or flight response. We know that those two things, an increase in adrenaline and an increase in cortisol, have an effect on the immune system and on your peripheral tissues because many of your immune cells have beta androgenic receptors on them for adrenaline. We know that monocytes respond to both cortisol and adrenaline. By reducing the amount of pro-inflammatory cytokines or pro-inflammatory monocytes, we're going to get less of those pro-inflammatory cytokines and a reduced amount of toll-like receptors on those cells. That is going to reduce one of your big pro-inflammatory cytokines of tumor necrosis factor alpha. Now from the muscle, we know that exercise is gonna increase interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 can also affect your production of cortisol, which is going to increase glucose production in addition to produce, help to produce increases in anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-1-RA and IL-10. Part of that comes from your peripheral tissues that contain T regulatory cells that can also produce IL-10. So that's a big part of how exercise also helps to change other cells. So T regulatory cells, in addition to monocytes, can alter their expression of receptors and cytokines based on exercise. So those receptors like TLR4 are changed in your monocytes and the ability for those cells to infiltrate adipose tissue. Not only are you gonna use more fat cells um, and fatty acids for energy by doing exercise, you're also going to change the ratio of immune cells and their ability to release cytokines as a part of that fat tissue 
you're going to reduce the fat tissue and change the ability of those anti-inflammatory um, cytokines to respond to exercise. Now there are some studies that have been released just since our textbook was written that kind of further evaluate the differences between your higher intensity exercise and your moderate intensity exercise. And what they have shown is that even low volume, high intensity exercise and high intensity steady state exercise produce similar anti-inflammatory effects. But there is kind of this idea that moderate exercise is probably not enough to increase IL-6 significantly. So it's becoming more obvious that moderate exercise may not drastically increase IL-6 in the system and get the big release of IL-10 that you do see in more high intensity exercise bouts. However, I did come across several studies that claim that even moderate exercise training by reducing your visceral adipose tissue, you're going to get a beneficial metabolic effect that can still change the inflammatory profile because of reducing the amount of adipose tissue. So you're still going to get some of these changes with the immune system and anti-inflammatory effects, even if you don't get the ones directly related to IL-6 with moderate intensity exercise. So what we now know is that even if you're not getting the benefits of high intensity exercise, if somebody has been highly sedentary and they've just been diagnosed with either high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or even diabetes, they can still benefit from even a moderate intensity exercise activity plan because they're going to get a reduction in adipose tissue if they stick with that and particularly if they can combine that with exercise, I'm sorry, with diet so that they get a negative energy balance. This is what the end of your chapter talks about as the importance of using exercise as a potential prevention and treatment for chronic disease. We've been talking about exercise as something that athletes do, that we want to try to reduce their risk of infectious disease, but it is really important to realize the benefit of exercise for chronic disease as well, and that the immune system through its production of inflammation is still going to be involved in treating chronic diseases. So this is where the exercise is medicine prescription comes in. And I found this cool graphic um, that they're trying to make it easier for healthcare practitioners to understand that you can use exercise in the same way that you would prescribing a, a medication of any kind. Unfortunately, our society here in the US and in Western society in general is looking for a quick fix. People go to the doctor and they don't really want to, to do the hard work and effort required to get the benefits of exercise. They just want a quick fix Band-Aid to try to fix their high blood pressure. They want a pill to reduce it. They want a, qu a quick fix pill to reduce their cholesterol. They want you know, something to take to control their symptoms of diabetes, but they don't wanna change their risks. So this is the big hill that we are trying to climb in our society is helping people to understand that the best medicine for chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes, and even just the risk factors for that, like hypertension and um, insulin sensitivity and uh, um, high cholesterol, is this idea that medicine, 
the best thing you can do because there are very few side effects. Whereas taking a medication to change your, your cholesterol or hypertension is going to have quite a few potential side effects and even interactions if you're taking multiple medications. So they tried to develop this website that I found, this idea that you could put together a pill bottle or exercise medicine label in the same way that you would other medications, that there is no expiration date for exercise. Cradle to grave is what they've, they've called it here, a lifelong commitment um, that just an investment of um, 30 minutes, five days a week, or any combination of intensity that produces a similar metabolic demand, that that can give you positive side effects, that these are good things, a, redu a reduction in risk of heart-related events, a 50% reduction in breast cancer death, a 50% reduction in bowel cancer death, almost a 50% reduction in diabetes death, an almost 50% reduction in even developing diabetes, and that's mainly due to the fact that you're probably gonna have a reduction in adipose tissue accumulation, a significant reduction in blood pressure, a significant, a significant reduction in falls, and you're actually gonna have a better ability to maintain bone health. So this is really big in older adults, and we have a much um, higher amount of um, chronic disease in older adults, in addition to the fact that our baby boomer population, as they age, we're going to have an increased demand for the healthcare system as they age and develop chronic disease. So if we could try to reduce the incidence of chronic disease by promoting exercise as a treatment and prevention, that this could pretty much be used for everything that's a major healthcare issue out there right now. All these things that older adults are concerned with and that they have been diagnosed with as they age could be delayed or reduced or maybe even completely avoided if they were to adopt exercise as a prevention and treatment strategy. And again, they try to make this look like a drug. So the four main ingredients of exercise as a prescription are the four main modes of exercise. So trying to do um, strengthening exercises, stretching exercises, and balance along with endurance. They don't really say it here, but that's what they're implying by these healthy heart exercises, that you should have endurance, strengthening, stretching, and balance. And this is where this fall risk part comes in, particularly for older adults. That's gonna be a, a big part. You've probably all at earlier ages known that you need to do endurance and strengthening and that stretching also helps with flexibility. But at younger ages, we don't think about balance because that's usually less of a concern in earlier life. But in later life, it's really big. And falls are one of the biggest things that increases mortality in later life, mainly because with falls, you tend to get hospitalization, a deconditioning, and that in induces other falls and increases risks of infections like pneumonia because of their hospitalization if they break a hip, for example. So this is the future of our professions. We need to be promoting exercise as the main prevention and treatment. So let's look at really what that does and what we need to help educate the public about in terms of using exercise as prevention and treatment for chronic disease. So what exercise mainly does, whether it is through the various immune or anti-inflammatory responses or through the metabolic components of exercise, it reduces risk factors of, of coronary heart disease by changing your lipid profile and reducing hypertension. And you get some of those same benefits 
from those reductions with stroke as a risk reduction because some of the pathology is the same. Atherosclerosis is one of the main causes of stroke, just like it is as a main cause of coronary heart disease. Now, the main reason that exercise works with type 2 diabetes, as I said, is changing that accumulation of fat content and increasing insulin sensitivity so that you can get a better glucose tolerance. With cancer, you're going to have, particularly with colon and breast cancer, better um, survival rates and decrease risk because of reducing your exposure to the things that produce cancer in those two cases. But even in all kinds of cancer, exercise has become a big part of even treatment because it, it increases the ability of that person to regain their function even after long-term um, uh, doses of, of chemotherapy. And it also enhances your innate function of identifying and destroying cancer cells through the function of natural killer cells and CD8 cytotoxic cells. In dementia, we know research shows that exercise reduces risk or at least delays the onset. So huge possibility for prevention. And even if somebody has already been diagnosed with chronic disease, exercise is truly medicine in the sense that it can treat and reduce the risk of death, even if you've already been diagnosed, and just improve quality of life. So even things that aren't the result of, um, of lack of exercise, like COPD, which is due to smoking, if you include something called uh, pulmonary rehabilitation as a part of treatment for COPD, that's where you help, and you can't really see it here, but that's what this picture is showing. Even somebody who is on oxygen because of COPD, if they can exercise, even if it's only very small amounts in the very beginning, they will reduce their shortness of breath. Shortness of breath is a huge issue with people with COPD. And unfortunately, when they get out of breath because of activity, they tend to stop doing activity because it makes them feel out of breath. That further declines their ability to do activity of any kind. So it becomes a vicious cycle. So for them, if they can can get into a, a pulmonary rehab program that will build up their stamina, they will then be able to engage in greater and greater amounts of activity that will keep them um, from experiencing shortness of breath, even with things like getting up in the morning and getting dressed or going up and down stairs. It will also improve their breathing efficiency because exercise will end up improving the strength of their intercostal muscles so that their lungs in general are better able to move with each breath. So even things that are totally not caused by a lack of exercise, they can still benefit from exercise. With autoimmunity, again, something not caused by exercise, but Exercise can still help treat it because it counteracts some of the inflammation that happens with an autoimmune process. We know all these other ones that I mentioned um, that are closely related to exercise, like diabetes, stroke, heart disease, and cancer, because it improves survival rates and reduces the risk of a secondary stroke or heart disease. With cancer, it improves immune surveillance and the deconditioning effects of chemotherapy treatment, and that's what you're seeing here in this picture. We know that people who are deconditioned because they haven't been able to do much with cancer treatment, they are able to recover more quickly if you incorporate um, exercise into their recovery efforts. With some of those musculoskeletal um, conditions, Osteoarthritis, this is another condition similar to COPD where people tend to reduce their activity because their activity becomes painful 
or they become out of breath and it's just too much so they stop being active that then further creates a cycle of not being able to be active even if they wanted to be so people with osteoarthritis tend to get very stiff and they tend to have more pain the longer that they sit if they continue to exercise and strengthen the tissue, particularly around the joints that are largely affected by arthritis, they can actually improve their quality of life and function. With osteoporosis, exercise is, is critical to building bone mass because without particularly weight-bearing activity, they are at greater risk of deteriorating their bone density even more. And as their bone density it decreases, if they would have a fall, they are at greater risk of a fracture, which then puts them at a high rate of mortality because a fracture means they have to go in the hospital and be exposed to infectious disease there, like pneumonia. That will then make them be deconditioned because they can't get up and walk. And it, it, it's actually not uncommon for people who fall and break a hip to have a really high rate of mortality up to a year after that event. They, they may have a very short um, life expectancy after a fall. Depression also, something that may not necessarily be caused by exercise, but can definitely benefit from exercise as a treatment for it because it helps regulate the neurotransmitter imbalance that occurs um, that creates the, the symptoms of depression in the first place. So while we've talked about all kinds of ways to avoid upper respiratory tract infection with exercise and, and a high training load, we also have to consider those same anti-inflammatory effects that in too high of an amount can lead to infection risk in athletes can at more moderate amounts still have positive effects on chronic disease prevention or treatment in your general public. And if a person is able to go beyond moderate amounts of exercise and do things like high intensity interval training, they may have even greater anti-inflammatory benefits um, towards chronic disease risk reduction, but yet not have enough of a training load to make them at risk for upper respiratory tract infection. So that's really the goal in reducing chronic disease here with these individuals is if we can get them to an amount that's a high enough intensity to get the benefits of anti-inflammatory effects, but not so high that they're at risk of upper respiratory tract infections the way that your elite athletes are. That's the ideal situation. So if you have any questions about this, please let me know. Hopefully this kind of puts a positive spin on everything we've been talking about. We've talked a lot about how exercise could have detrimental effects at high amounts, but it is critical to reducing disease and even treating disease of, of a chronic nature like heart disease and diabetes, in, particularly in later life as our, our U.S. population increases its age as we go forward in the next few decades. So if you have any questions about this, please let me know.